surviving humans with wax and frost. So, Gareth, I'm I'm looking in round your office at the moment at this rather sort of cornucopia of um, cornucopia. Life. What, uh, dear audience, when she says cornucopia, what she means? Slightly so rearranged <laughs> results of a bomb going off in a very small space. I, I'm just noticing a book here called Old Age: Its Cause and Prevention: The Story <laughs> of an Old Body and Face Made Young. Okay, I'll tell you a story about this. So. Listeners, over time you're going to get used to some of the references I put forward. One of the one of the ones that's going to repeat again and again is a gentleman named Ben Henderson, multi-instrumentalist, uh, steampunk uh, connoisseur du jour, and also a very good friend of mine. And he and I, uh, both enjoying a love of the slightly camp, as well as enjoying playing around with new ideas, coming up with a sort of wide-eyed gleam of the near future and, and just talking about odds and sods. Both often to be found wearing suits, bow ties, etc. And, 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 you know, looking a bit like a, an anachronism in a modern age. So tell me about your choice of bow tie today, Gareth. I can't, it's, it, I can't, which one is it? Peach? Yeah, it's peach. Uh, paisley. On, a pink, on, on, on a, a pink shirt. Yeah. I know, slightly worrying. I normally have a waistcoat on. Dear Frost here was actually at the... Uh, trying to ply out and rip apart my legs and arms earlier in the form of some, some yoga. What, what is that? Yeah, it's called a Thai yoga massage. And I think, I think that's actually what, what, what was the sort of seed of this idea, wasn't it? Is Absolutely. A, yeah. Let's get intimate. But, oh, yeah, yes. <laughs> Moving swiftly on. I was going to say was that, so my dear friend Ben Henderson, often, we're, we're often seen out like a, a couple of, of young cards, as it were. He doesn't really like modern exercise. He doesn't really do that sort of weightlifting nonsense and, and so on. And, and I said to him, so how the hell do you stay supple and slender and svelte-like? And he said, um, I found this amazing man. Sanford Bennett. Sanford Bennett. Now, actually a gentleman who passed away uh, in the earliest part of the, of the 20th century, I think in the 1920s or thereabouts. But he'd put together this whole book, a whole system of movements that you can do from your bed, movements that you can do without putting that much effort in to keep you supple and slender. I've started doing more of them. In the mornings I am to be seen whirling my legs around in the bed and, and doing odd stretches here and there. It is, right, yes. it, it so, is worth uh, checking out. I, so it's, it's an old body, the story of an old body and face made young. So, so tell me a little bit more. So, there's there's a, a, an element of kicking your legs around, and but it's 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 very low low impact, low impact. Exercise. It is low impact, and the concept is if you do repeated stretches and and things like that in a less regimented, not okay peloton, none of that stuff. Um, it's <laughs> that you can over time overcome some of the ravages of age. Look, for goodness' sakes, we're not going to be turning out to be uh, sweet young things. Uh, kicking our heels on the beaches of Ibiza. I'm talking about the fact that you can become old both gracefully and disgracefully. There you go. And I think that really brings us to our main subject, which is survival. Um, and that's what we're going to be talking about over the next uh, few episodes of our podcast, is survival. And maybe surviving... Where are we now? Middle age? Are we sort of beyond middle age? If you want to be kind, you can call it middle age. Yeah. I think I left middle age in my rear view mirror some time back. Okay. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm delightfully sitting on the 55 to 56 cusp coming up to my 56th birthday. I've got no problems with that. I think that's just a part and parcel of the decrepitude that humans are, are subject to. But, but the truth of the matter is, it is annoying. It is, I do get annoyed more than frustrated, I get annoyed with little things. 
I want to tie the shoelaces. And once I'm down there, I have to then face the abject pain of having to go back up again. The bending down to pick stuff up and realising that your back is complaining at you. It's like a foreman shouting at one of his employees. Get back up again! We can't quite get there, sorry. So, if that's the body, uh, as you say, trying to cope with the middle age, what's the mind doing at this point? Well, the mind is throwing his arms up in mild despair and wondering how the hell we got into this mess in the first place. When we remember quite distinctly, it seems not that long ago, when in fact it probably was, uh, dancing around on the dance floors of, of, of uh, London, Paris and New York, enjoying oneself, uh, flinging one's arms around uh, young lovelies in gay abandon and generally having a right old rollicking fun. But the truth of the matter is, I, I just don't think I can do it and survive. Mm-hmm. And so that really annoys me. I mean, dear listener, over time, you're going to hear a number of repeated memes from me covering areas of, of life that, that annoy the hell out of me. Everything from how to load a dishwasher wrong, which apparently I'm, I'm a specialist in, uh, through to, through to uh, uh, how to discard one clothes in a series of piles as one clambers into bed. But all of this comes up with uh, one of our later uh, topics, which will be surviving marriage. Mm. This one is the reason why we've called this podcast Surviving Humans. And this has really come out of a a bit of self-discovery I went about five or six years ago. I've always considered myself apart from others. Now, this sounds awfully arrogant, but it is not intending to be so. Not better, not superior, not improved, just different what that meant was in my early years as with everybody and i'm certain that people can chime along with this one everybody when they're young desperately wants to feel like they can fit in and then once we hit a certain magic age usually in our mid-20s uh, perhaps late 30s we suddenly want to stand out mm. it's like for god's sake make up your mind i've never fitted in and i've always stood out often for the wrong reasons and i i now was able to put a name to that because I did a bit of self-discovery, put myself through some tests, and what came out quite strongly is apparently that I'm quite far along the spectrum. And when I say this in comparison, well, I, I did. I got a number of people that, around me who I consider to be normal Joes, normal people, the average sort of chums that I had, to also partake in the same test. Their results all grouped around one section And then I did my own, and I was in the far distance. Mm. Um, So immediately that made me realise that being, as they termed it, the neurodiverse. Anyway, so, dear listener, you have to bear with me. I I rant every so often. So, moving along. I think I've, we worked out I've known Gareth about four years now. And um, there has always been a sense of frustration, would be the word, that what... Gareth feels is often uh, an innocent remark can sound for others um, insensitive and I have been on the other end of that and I think when Gareth told me that he was and his words were high functioning Asperger's yes I've since been told that that's not the right way of calling it I can call myself high functioning autistic or I can just call myself Asperger's. Strange. I, I just call myself Colin. I've got a bit of Colin. <laughs> and uh, and I think it is something about uh, understanding that um, whatever term you want to give it, there's a more uh, empathy given than when um, 
you know, I had some what I call ouch moments with Gareth, haven't I, in the past? Where... Oh, yes, a number of them. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's interesting because, you know, surviving relationships is often about forgiveness, understanding, uh, putting oneself in that other person's position. Um, and I know Gareth to be uh, a kind man, someone who loves to help, someone who's a very good friend. Uh, and it's keeping that in mind when those uh, remarks, comments come at you and knowing this isn't, he doesn't mean it, he doesn't mean it. Well, I don't um, mean it quite the way you mean it. I mean, I mean things in a very matter-of-fact kind of way. Mm, I, mm. It, it, I, I call a, a spade a mechanical digging implement. I, I don't call it by any other name. It is what it is. But didn't you once tell me that you don't have emotions? No, I've since realised that that's not entirely accurate. Uh, the triggering of those emotions aren't necessarily uh, what other people recall as being, and I use this word in large, uh, large flashing neon lit parentheses, normal. Mm -hmm. So, and you I, cry at films, Gareth. I mean, I absolutely bawl my eyes out. Yeah. I, I was crying my eyes out at Up the other day, the animated uh, adventure. Mm, I think that was quite a discovery for you that actually. Ah, this is what it feels like to really cry, you know, and and it was a film that triggered that rather than uh, maybe a breakup or where obviously you felt some pain at some level, but you you didn't necessarily cry. Apparently, apparently, and as far as emotional response is concerned, I do anger extremely well, uh, mostly born out of frustration. Mm. So, you know, sadness to me only it needs to be triggered by uh, a video stream. It, the only way I can seem to, to really fall into that feeling of, of sadness, that sort of mellifluous disharmony that causes one to cry one's eyes out, is either one of three things. I get it from food, I get it from music, and I get it from film. Mm -hmm. Let's be clear, food makes you feel... So it's a, it's the hooked back into an emotional response from a childhood event. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, bizarrely, Knickerbocker Glory makes me cry my eyes out mm. uh, because I had an extremely traumatic incident uh, to do with my parents and uh, a Knickerbocker Glory. So it was a Thursday afternoon and I'd done spectacularly well in a spelling quiz school. And as a result, my parents were going to take me out for a celebratory Knickerbocker glory. I'd read about them in books. And I'd seen them on the telly. For those listeners that don't know what one is. Okay. It's a, a pudding-y pudding type affair. One thing, a sweet, if you like, that one would have uh, at the end of a meal. Uh, often these days uh, produced in a tall glass, probably about 30 to 40 centimetres high, usually fluted, so or sometimes even exaggeratedly fluted at the top, and usually with different layers in it. Somewhat like a trifle, often topped off with large amounts of whipped cream, perhaps with flakes and other goodies on the top, mm -hmm. and of course, always with hundreds of thousands. And a long spoon. And a, uh, one mustn't forget the long spoon. How else is one to get to the sweet treats at the bottom? Mm -hmm. So it sounds delicious, and this is something you are obviously looking forward to. It was your reward for doing very well at the spelling quiz. What happened? Well, we got there, and I hadn't... I can't remember exactly what I hadn't done, but I hadn't done something. I think it was they received 
a, a note from somebody and they'd only just opened it, it whatever. Uh, it said from school I hadn't done something. And because of that, I uh, literally, I was taken to the front door and we looked inside and we could see people. Somebody was actually having one. And my parents, my mother turned around to me, bent down to my level and said, see that? You can't have it because you didn't do whatever it was right. Mm. And they turned me on my heel and marched me home. Mm. That's something that was in silence. So the first time I ever ate one, Mm. I was actually in my mid twenties. And what was the feeling of having one that you? I was actually quite. I was actually a bit disappointed. It wasn't anywhere as good as I built it up to be. But (laughs) isn't that often the case? (laughs) Oh God, yes. But it also made me cry. The sudden, I don't know. I felt a moment of triumph. I could do it. No one could stop me. And then I felt childish and, and stupid and puerile. That I think it was something my wife, darling Heather, once said. She said, um, that sort of feeling is a bit like taking poison and expecting the other person to die. Mm. It's, what was I triumphant at? Mm. Who would know mm. and who would care? Mm. Mm. And yet it triggered something deep within your your memory. Uh, and they say that, don't they, that trauma can stay on a very uh, muscular physical level and potentially that ice cream well i, I awoke some i remember deep-seated feeling it, mm. it happened as it arrived mm. and we were in an american style diner in camden i remember exactly where we were and in that american style ga- uh, uh, diner it turned up in front of me and she just put it down with a there you also and wandered off and i looked at it and there it was in all its magnificent, glistening, neon-like glory. And I just started leaking. Mm. You know? Mm. It, it just leaking as I, as I realised. And I hadn't even thought about that memory. When did you realise that years. that was there? Because oh, okay. I didn't go there to have that. It was the end of a meal. And I saw, oh, I've never had one of those before. Always mm. wanted to know what that tasted like. Mm-hmm. So it was that feeling. And so you said food, and there were two other things. That Music. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, sometimes I have no idea why. Paco Bell, very famous uh, uh, string quartet. Uh, that, that piece of chamber music will make me cry my eyes out. But also some other weird and wonderful bits and pieces. Mm. Really mm. odd tunes that wouldn't... I can't understand why they would... Arvo part. Uh, Air a ch- on a G string, for instance, yes, makes there's, there's, Yeah, there's one for me that, for reasons I don't really know, always makes me cry, and it's always a- associated with my father. And there's something in the sort of childlike melody that, it, it's a good, it's a cathartic cry. It's wonderful. Um, but every time I listen to that piece of music, I, it sets me off. Just sometimes the trigger can cause a, a tumult. But I had to let it play out, and I've noticed that. There are other food-related events, but food seems to be a very, very strong thing for me. And what was the third thing? Music, food, and video streaming, you said? Video yeah. streaming. It, the, huh. I've always been noted as having a, a muted response to trauma, so specifically trauma that happens in front of me. I've had several people die in my arms or die holding their hands, and it's... I've not had an emotional response per se. You know, I've I felt sad in a in a muted way that they were gone, but let's move along. Mm. 
However, I mean, for, for here's a good example was as my mother-in-law, who I was very close to, uh, was was dying from bone cancer, which had got to the point where she was barely awake. She was being kept there just so people could say goodbye to her. And she was effectively dying in the room next to me, all around me, bawling their eyes out. And let's not forget, I'd been incredibly close to this woman. It had no effect on me. Later on, some month or so later, when I watched some video of her on a beach in Barbados, of her on a beach in Canberra Sands, of her talking to me through the camera, and I started leaking again. It was, and this has happened before. If you take a normal event that would normally cause someone upset, and it plays out literally in front of me, in, in, in inverted commas, as it were, real life, and then, and video it, and then and the effect of me in real life is none, but if you play it back to me through the, through the television or on the screen, I, I will have an emotional response. So there's something about... Uh, so it's a trigger. I, it, so it's not like, I, to, in response to what you said earlier, it's not that I don't have an emotion, mm. it's the triggering of it seems mm. to be tricky. It, but it sounds like also there's something, you're a step away, there's a sort of slight objectiveness when you're watching something on screen. There's, there is a screen, it's, it's a visual image, but there's something about it not happening in real life and on either playback or something that you're watching as you've talked to, talked to me before on a film that allows you to somehow access those emotions that you, you're not able to in, in a real life in front of you situation. The trigger, and I think it's that's what it is, seems to have to be external and not current. Mm. And yeah, and I'd be interested to know whether there's any, whether you have talked to others with that same diagnosis and said, you know, is this something that you've experienced too? I have spoken to them and no one has said exactly that, but some of them have said that they get triggered by things after the event. Mm. So the event happens, no response. It's like a delayed and then reaction. Later, yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if that's the same thing, mm. but that seems to be quite common. Now, what I was referring to before, if you recall, when I was, when I was talking about this terrible burden that, uh, that we put upon ourselves when we're young to fit in, to be part of the norm, as it were. And I always found myself outside of it. And if I can take anything... And, and, and then later on, once I had my diagnosis and I realized that I was different but the same not better not worse just different I've now used that in business and that would be something that we'll talk about later on but I think what's interesting from from what you've just said now and I definitely experienced myself is that and Maslow's very famous for this creating this hierarchy of needs very basic is survival reproduction you know making sure that we're sh we have shelter food water but quite down on this hierarchy is the need to belong where's our tribe who is our tribe and I know that I feel still now at 52 that I have never felt a sense of this is my tribe well I've only recently just found mine mm. and my tribe uh, I only came across and I'm going to loop back to my friend Ben Henderson because Ben Henderson's very much involved in the steampunk community and I've always had an interest in it because I've always loved machines and Heath Robinson-esque scenarios and all of that how many monocles do you have now well let's not go there but <laughs> but the point is mm. it was only once i met with those kind of people 
I started feeling at home. But I've never wanted or sought to be part of a tribe beyond the time when I lost my religious fervour. That was my tribe. My George Bernard Shaw quote, which helps you understand what I mean about fitting in and not fitting in, was entitled The Reasonable Man. So the reasonable man adapts himself to the world. The unreasonable one persists in trying to adapt the world to himself. Therefore, all progress depends on the unreasonable man. And I've always seen myself, as I'm sure you'll attest, to being quite unreasonable. This was The Essential Guide to Surviving Humans with Frost and Wax. Thank you very much. Thank you.